0: Everyone's having a great weekend. It is episode 25 of The Locker Room. We've an awesome interview today with Rich Hollenberg, who is the Tampa Bay Rays broadcaster for Fox Sports in Florida. It's actually a big day for me personally, but I'll, I'll let you guys kind of set me up for the story here. But uh, I do want to kick it over to my co-host, Justin Capmaster. Kapp, Master How you doing?
1: Good last big day. I don't know about big day for you, but uh, we'll get into that. I don't know about you guys. A little tired this morning when I woke up, but I'm pretty enthusiastic right now to get this interview out for you guys. Not going to lie to you though, boys. I wish I could be crushing a bacon, egg and cheese right now. Um, Speaking of bacon, egg and cheese, bagel boss. When thinking about Long Island bagels, bagel boss is the first thing that immediately comes to mind at bagel boss. We look forward to bringing you the finest New York bagels, Bialis and bakery delicacies. We offer a wide variety of kosher foods for every occasion, from a simple family brunch to an extravagant and elegant bar mitzvah. Bagel Boss does it all. Out of state? Not a problem. Bagel Boss ships nationwide. Visit our new website, bagelofthemonth.com, to have all our award-winning products shipped directly to your front door anywhere in the U.S. Use code LAKA10 for 10% off. That's L-A-T-K-E 10 for 10% off. Besides that, boys, let's kick it over to Max. Max, what's doing? baseball's back is what's doing so baseball is back so johnny what's what's the big news you
0: getting married no my uh my family is meeting ellie's family for the first time so uh you know a lot of fake behavior gonna go on today and and we'll we'll see what happens my dad's gonna be extra polite extra nice so uh, i'm curious to see how how that goes i haven't seen him put on that act in, in a long time
1: it's i was gonna say it's funny how laz says uh big day for me meanwhile it's Ellie's graduation party. <laughs> yes, it is Ellie's graduation party today. Well, I would I say a nice little
0: gathering. We're gonna have a nice a nice little Saturday. Might go to the Home Depot. Don't have enough, well, enough time. <laughs> <laughs> is your dad is your dad gonna slick the hair to the side? Uh, whatever's left, yeah, whatever he's got yeah, up to the but, left. Uh, Make sure he's got, got the moose moose in the moose in the hair. Yeah, but uh, no, enough about my dad. I, what do you guys think of these cutouts in the MLB games? I think they're so stupid. They look ridiculous. I think I think it's funny. I don't know if you guys saw, but Chipper Jones had a pretty good troll job on the Mets. Him and his son got a cutout right right behind third base.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, it's it's a big troll job because Chipper Jones was a Met was a Met killer. And he was a third baseman? He's a third baseman. So you got you got Chipper Jones right
1: behind third base for all Met games. Mm-hmm. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah, but was, I don't I don't know about the cutouts. I don't know how I feel about them, but I know how I feel about Julia Rose flashing Derek Cole again on TV. I saw that. That was awesome. That was amazing. You see
0: that, Max? Uh, that what, what was that like last year? He,
1: no, yeah, no, no, that, she, no, no. It happened last year in person. But then she obviously you can't go to the game, so she like posted a picture on TV of like him about the pitch, and she was like, uh, like Yeah, flash, unbelievable. So I love, her. But, She's awesome. I don't know if you guys, I don't know if you guys heard about this. They were talking about adding. This was before the quarantine, before baseball even started. They were talking about this might have been with soccer, to be honest with you, I'm not sure. But they were talking about bringing like sex dolls into the crowd as like fans and not like obviously naked sex dolls. They would dress them up as like, (laughs) like Mets player, a Mets fans or Yankee fans and keep them in the stands. I mean, I think it's the stupidest idea ever, but I think it's, I thought it was hilarious. I think that'd be, creepier than, than the cutout to be honest i mean the only thing with the cutouts is
0: like i mean if they're gonna like change them up every game fine but if, if i see the same like smiling faces like every game at at city field when i'm watching that game like that's just gonna be so annoying be
1: like let's be like oh i know that doll i used to have that <laughs>
0: <No>. <laughs> i wasn't but, uh, i wasn't a sex dog guy but i yeah, I, I just get that yeah i mean things. i mean both, <laughs> i mean one idea costs the organization money the other one is the fans pay for it i, I mean i guess I, yeah. i'm not totally i'm not totally against it just simply because some fans want to have their cut out there me personally i would never pay i think it's 80 bucks to have my face cut out to be <laughs> at a game i would never do it but as you can see there are fans that like it and want to have their their own cutouts
1: I have my face cut out here somewhere but i'm still whipping out of here for you boys i don't yeah, know we how should, much I, I was gonna say we should have we
0: should have uh, the three of us wearing locker room T-shirts behind home plate at at the Rays games. Uh, maybe Rich Rich could hook it up for us.
1: That'd be so funny. I don't know. I know. Ba- I know. Baseball started that, boys. I don't know if you guys saw have watched any soccer games. I'm sure you guys have watched a few, but I think it's so cool how they have like the the fight songs and everything like that like going on mid game. Yeah, think those are sick.
0: World, right, those are sick. I think those are great.
1: And then of course, I also love how they like flash to like. The fan base like if if like one of the teams scores they have people like live stream i don't know if you saw that and they like go to like their reactions from their house and they're like yeah let's go baby yeah that's a great idea that's that's something that like i would like
0: consider doing if i was you know watching a ranger game maybe. yeah like
1: foxy scores yeah also you see lazy on the, the locker room boys on this on the live tv that'd be sweet
0: but i think we should send it over to rich He's an amazing storyteller. He told us some really cool things, a lot of Camp Tawanda pride, but I think you guys will enjoy it.
1: Yeah, let's do it. Um, Great interview. So excited for you guys to hear it.
0: This guy grew up in Rivervale, New Jersey, and was bar mitzvahed at Temple Beth Shalom in Park Ridge, New Jersey. He attended the Newhouse School of Publications in Syracuse, where he majored in broadcast journalism and graduated in 1993 with a Bachelor of Science degree. After he graduated, he got a job at the New Jersey Nets, which led him to becoming a writer slash editorial assistant at the New York City Bureau of, of the Associated Press. In 1999, he was the PA announcer for the Tampa Bay Lightning which made him the youngest PA announcer at that time, according to him. In in 2009, he joined ESPN and was a men's college basketball play-by-play commentator. Since then, he has gone on to work for the NFL Network as a reporter and correspondent, as well as the Fox Sports Studio host for the Tampa Bay Rays. Most importantly, he was a camper once upon a time at Camp Tawanda in Wayne County, Pennsylvania. We are very excited to have him join us. Welcome to the Locker Room Podcast. Our newest, biggest fan, Rich Hollenberg. How you doing, Rich? Uh,
2: I am fantastic. It, it's just great hearing some of the things I've done on my resume, only to be capped by he was a camper captain at Camp Tawanda. That that really is, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, maybe the highlight of my career so far.
0: We didn't even have captain. I didn't even know you were the captain. You got to break Oh, anymore.
2: are you kidding me? Come on, Laz. You, if you're <laughs> doing your homework, you got to do your homework. Bro.
1: Oh, oh, wow.
2: Still <laughs> <you> have the plaque. <laughs> I- there's the plaque, 1986. And not only that, but uh, I, don't, I don't know what your experience is like. Which one of you went to Equinox? One of you went to Equinox, one of you went to Greylock, right?
0: I'm Equinox. I think you're on mute. Yeah, sorry. I, I went to Greylock.
2: So our, we, we had what was called Olympics at the end of the year. You split the camp up into two, all different sports activities and, you know, entertainment activities and stuff like that. The biggest thing at our camp was not winning Olympics. It was winning rope burning. And it was a whole basically like a production line, if you will, of campers who gathered the wood, sorted the wood, ran the wood up. And then the camper captains actually built a fire to burn down a rope that was 12 feet high. And I still have the half of my rope from winning rope burning in 1986. Again, highlight of my life.
1: Is this is this is this camp or is this uh, an an army drill? Like, what's going no, on? No,
2: no, it was nothing like that. But faces painted in zinc. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was full on absolute war. I mean, and we were in that fire trying to build it up. We went TP box
0: TP to get the W. I got mine for my senior year right here.
2: There you go. I love it. I love
0: it. <laughs> ours, ours was uh, red and gray. We, we didn't do captains though. It was just like we'd select for each division so fresh we we had freshman sophomore junior senior we'd have one burner from each division that would go head to head and that and like it would be however many points you needed you you need to burn three ropes or four ropes i feel like we could spend five hours talking about color war rope burn or olympic rope burn but but rich i do want to ask what have you been doing to stay busy the last couple months i know you got three kids was it Yes. Three children. Uh, One, my
2: oldest, Jason, is going to be a junior in high school. He's 16. My daughter, Lindsay, is 14, going on 35. And my uh, youngest son is 11. And he's probably the closest to me in terms of being a sports fan. Um, So one of the things that I've done is I, I swore to myself because of my jobs, I basically spend like 200 days on the year, guys. So I'm not around a lot as much as I'd like to be for my kids and my wife. So I swore that I was going to take this time to find ways to stay connected with them. And with my oldest son, it's kind of easy because he's old enough now he likes to work out and be in good shape and he's a basketball player. So we've done things like uh, we did a burpee challenge for 30 days where we did a hundred burpees a day for 30 straight days. And now I'm kind of training him in basketball. Um, my daughter, she loves food like I do. So I've been getting her in the kitchen and trying to, teach her some, uh, some cooking skills, some life skills in the kitchen. And uh, I've taken up some baking, which I'm a terrible baker, because I don't like following wow. the rules of baking. But I've been learning on the fly like that. And then for my youngest son, Brian, what I decided to do was we do something called pick a press pass. So I have like hundreds and hundreds of press passes that I've collected through the years. And he reaches in, pulls one out, and I have to tell him the story of whatever I can remember from that particular event that I covered, whether it was major league baseball, college basketball, NFL football. And uh, so that's been kind of fun. We've, we've done about nine episodes of that over the last couple of months.
1: It, see, it seems like you've been doing like at least 100 burpees per day. What are those, like 22s you got rocking right now? What's going on?
2: <laughs> uh, I don't know about that, but uh, I, I, I'm trying to stay in good shape because as I mentioned just a moment ago, I literally like food is my guilty pleasure whenever I'm traveling on the road as much as I do, my goal is to find the best place for breakfast because my job basically takes up a lot of my afternoons and evenings. So the chances of getting a good dinner or sometimes even a good lunch are limited, but breakfast is always open to me. So that's kind of become my pilgrimage is find the best breakfast spots wherever I am. And believe me when I tell you there is no shortage of them all around the country, even in some of the smaller college towns that I visit.
1: I'm a big I'm a big foodie as well, and I got to ask you, being a big Tampa guy, um, have you been to American Social before?
2: So here's a funny story, uh, Justin. American Social started in Fort Lauderdale, and Paul Greenberg is a friend of mine. He's the guy who started Amso, and their first restaurant, which is in, as I mentioned, Fort Lauderdale, was literally right across the street from the hotel that I stay at. When the Rays are on the road and I'm in studio doing my pre and post game, yeah. Fox Sports Studios in Fort Lauderdale. So uh, we're at AMSO all the time. So, and I was so psyched when Paul opened the one in Tampa. And it's a primo location. Maybe the best sports bar in all of Tampa Bay now.
1: Oh, I love that. Um, it's, funny, it's funny you say that. Paul's actually my cousin. No way. Paul is my cousin, I love Paul to death, so that's why I had to bring it up. But yeah, yeah you, right dude. when you were you, you were ranting, rant, like, Oh I started the Port Lauderdale I'm like, Oh I, I know I already know the whole spiel. Make I'm sure you me.
2: tell him Rich Hollenberg from the Tampa Bay Rays, Fox Sports, Florida says hello. He's a good dude. I-
1: I will, I will. Yeah, and they've been doing really well considering the whole coronavirus stuff like that because they're just a great atmosphere and great food and I'm happy they're starting to get back up. Do you know if, the, I haven't talked to them in a couple of weeks, do you know if the Tampa one's open to the public yet? I,
2: I don't, but most things here um, have been opened. Now, as we speak, I don't know when this is gonna uh, officially drop, but as we speak, there's been a rise in the coronavirus cases, pop testing yeah. positive, starting to roll things back now. Things have been open, so I would be surprised, and I haven't been that way. I live in St. Pete over the bridge. Uh, I haven't been that way in a while, but if I had a guess, I would say they are open uh, because most places are at this
1: point. Yeah, I know. It's been spiking crazy. I'm, I'm from Coral Springs, so I'm here right now. So, I mean, I uh, you know, Florida is just – it's absolutely insane right now with this whole virus pandemic. But I do want to get into the Jewish stuff because you know we love the nitty-gritty of it. Take us back September 1980s, beautiful Bergen County. Um, <laughs> So, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are coming up. What's the setup like? Where are we having the meals? What's going on?
2: Okay, first of all, you made you made where I grew up sound really bougie. It's Bergen <laughs> County, not Bergen County. Uh, but I'll cut you some slack on that since you're a Florida guy. Growing up, I grew up in Rivervale. Uh, I didn't, there's obviously, I grew up in the Northeast, and yeah. I grew up in the Northeast part of the Northeast, which is, you know, New Jersey. And most people would call it the armpit of New Jersey, but. You know, being from there, the farther I've gotten away from living there, and I haven't lived there in 25 plus years, uh, the prouder I am of being a Garden State, uh, a Garden State veteran. I'm a huge Springsteen fan. Still have my Bruce Springsteen bumper sticker that I bought in high school. That's right here. Uh, <laughs> so that, you know, that's a point of pride. But um, I didn't go to school with a lot of Jewish people. There, there were certainly a okay. fair amount. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't inundated with Jews, at least from my perspective. I grew up conservative, so we were always going to, you know, temple on the high holidays. Uh, I went to Hebrew school. I was bar mitzvahed, all that stuff. Now, you know, all those years later, I am much more of a spiritual Jew. I would describe myself that way. Um, don't really attend temple. Sometimes during the high holidays, I'll go online, and they have, like, streaming services, and I'll do that but my children uh, haven't been and won't be born bat mitzvahed. We celebrate the holidays here, the big ones, right? And my wife wasn't Jewish. So we celebrate the big four. We do Hanukkah and Christmas, and we do Passover and Easter. And everything else is more, you know, a mention here and there about what they are. I'll make a special Rosh Hashanah meal am home. We'll cut up the apples, have some honey, that type of thing. Uh, but I take special pride in, in certainly in making latkes on Hanukkah around that time. And I crush my Passover Seder meals. Um, <laughs> I am I'm very proud of the brisket that I make every year. And it's unlike oh, any brisket. I, I love a good brisket. It. I love a yes, good brisket. It's kind of a family recipe through the years. It's all done on the stovetop. Nothing on the grill or in a smoker. What's the uh, secret? The <laughs> secret is the sauce, and I can't tell you that. I'd have to kill you if I told you. It's a Hollywood family secret.
0: I was just uh, saying, can you can you adopt me, dude? Your kids sound like they live the life with the holidays, it's tough. For I mean,
2: yeah. We we joke uh, we joke that they they live a tough life, and and if you heard them tell it, they would tell you as much. But uh, we all are aware of how fortunate they are. You know, the double holidays of presents chocolate up the wazoo around Easter and Passover time. It, it's all good. Uh, cry me a river if they're going to complain.
1: <laughs> so no bar, no bar mitzvah or bar mitzvah for them. What about a sweet 16? Any, you no, got, no, you, you as a know, matter of fact, my diet. daughter's
2: she's going to be 15 in August, and that hasn't been on the table yet. But that doesn't seem like that big of a thing here either. It's, it's, it's weird. Maybe it's, yeah, maybe it's the circles we run in. I don't know. Be but, uh, do listen. My kids don't go to summer camp. My kids haven't been bar mitzvah. We might not have a sweet sixteen for my daughter. My wallet is thanking me every day for living down here.
1: So, so since they they're not getting uh, the bar mitzvah, so we could talk about yours though, if you remember that far back. Sure. Um, what was the go-to song? What was your walkout song when you came out? And if you were to have a bar mitzvah today, what would your walkout song be? I gotta I gotta think it's gonna be Springsteen, no? though.
2: Wow. wow, it would have to be Springsteen. And this this isn't my favorite Springsteen song by a long shot. But I, I mean, at first thought, Thunder Road would be up there. 10th Avenue Freeze Out might be in the running. But I think at the end of the day, if I'm 13 year old Rich Hollenberg, it would probably have to be Born to Run, right? I mean, yeah. that would probably win going back to when I was 13. I didn't have a walkout song. Like, you guys are way, way younger than me. I was from a different generation and I listened to the, the Howie Rose interview and he said the same thing. Howie's got a couple years on me, but you know, back in the 80s, we didn't have walkout songs. Some kids had themes, I didn't have a theme, I was not interested in any of that. Um, as outgoing as I was, and I truly, not to get too sidetracked, but I first discovered my love of being on camera, if you will, the first time I ever had a microphone in my hand was I was emceeing my sister's bat mitzvah two years earlier, back in 1982. It was, and my parents said to me, Why don't you host the candle lighting ceremony? So I was like, Okay. So I wrote some cheesy rhymes about my family calling them up, <laughs> and I got some laughs and I got some applause. And I was like, Hey, I did this. I, that's I, the best I, I part. Into this. So, um, that's where it started for me, 1982, as a 10 year old with a microphone in my hand. And I've, gone on to do different things. I did the same thing at my bar mitzvah. Uh, but there weren't any real go-to songs. I think the same ones that you might play today. I mean, uh, Celebration by Cool and the Gang was huge. We Are Family by Sister Sledge, that was a big <laughs> one. I mean, we played those songs at my wedding back in 2000. So uh, those songs have staying power for sure.
0: My dad was over on the couch lifting up his yingling when you said Born to Run, Thunder Road, and 10th Avenue Freeze Out. I think those are- <laughs> nice. nice. His top three.
2: Respect but, uh, to Mr.
1: Lazarus, then. Papa <laughs> Lazarus having a yingling right now? Tom, congrats. Well, he's on like his fourth. But, uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but uh Rich, I, I know we mentioned Tawanda a little bit before, and we love talking about Sleepaway Camp on this podcast. I know you mentioned to me that you starred in some plays just like Seth Davis back in the day, but can you tell us some of your favorite memories from Camp Tawanda?
2: One thing, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Dave Sims, because he hasn't been in New York Uh, I don't think since you guys have been alive. But Dave Sims was a WFAN guy for a long time. He's now the play-by-play voice of the Seattle Mariners. And Dave's become a friend through our Major League Baseball connections. And one of the things that he's talked about in the past is how important he thinks theater is to an aspiring sportscaster getting their, their chops, earning their chops, maybe finding their voice if you will, and I never thought about it, but when I was in camp for about four straight years, I was in the camp play, I was never the lead. The closest I came to a lead was back in 1983, so I was 12 years old, and they decided my age group was gonna do Beatlemania, and I auditioned by, and I'll never forget this, I auditioned by singing I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett and the Black Arts, and I got the job as Paul McCartney, and so I, I remember the most profoundly nervous moment I ever had, maybe in my life to this day, was standing on center stage in front of the entire camp. And I'm guessing there were 200, 250 kids there with counselors and so on and so forth. And I had a sing yesterday in front of my entire camp. No, only a piano to accompany me. And it was just me, center stage, spotlight, again, microphone in hand and I, to whatever degree, pulled off singing yesterday in front of my camp, but I was in Bye Bye Birdie, I was in Annie Get Your Gun, uh, and then it ended up when you became older, I don't know if you all had something that is akin to what we called Airband. Airband is basically like karaoke, and we did Airband every summer also, and I became one of the godfathers of Airband, So I'm a huge music fan, my head is filled with either stats from sports or music lyrics, because I, I have this uncanny, unusable ability to know tons of lyrics to tons of songs across different genres. So that was my next step in performing in front of a crowd was I went from the camp musicals to kind of leading the way in Airband for Camp Tawanda.
0: Something similar to Airband, we had this group called, I think they were called like Julius C or something. I don't know, Max, they may have came to your camp, but It was like this band, but it was like a karaoke band. So they would perform and like groups at a time would go up one by one. You'd like pick a song and practice with them that day. And then in front of the whole camp, you'd like sing that song with the band to the whole camp it was it was pretty cool i don't know max do you remember that you have that we we never did that the only karaoke we did was at the bars at night at, <laughs> as a counselor yeah uh, when you were uh, at cit those uh, are the best years those are the best years i my, my go-to song shaggy it wasn't me i know the rap so that's like my uh <laughs> that's my go-to that's 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 a huge hit with the ladies just like that mustache on Maxie today But oh, yeah uh, <laughs> but rich we also got to ask have you had the chance to go to Israel at all like birthright or anything
2: One of my I, I wouldn't call it a regret cuz I don't try I don't want to live my life with regrets but when once I got to I, I never even dreamed about going to Israel when I was getting bar mitzvah or anything like that and maybe it was a different time but at the time I don't know if a lot of families really did that back then nowadays they do I have a I have a niece who's right around your guys age and she's been twice She went as like a study thing for a semester and she went with my sister and their family, Uh, but I never had the desire to do that, nor did I ever get a chance to travel abroad in general. I was always so hyper-focused in college that if I went to London or Prague or Italy for a semester, I'd be missing out on my experience at Newhouse and broadcasting, so I was really myopic. I was totally focused on maxing out my time at Syracuse, as far as that goes, TV, radio, whatever it was. And I, I missed out on that. So I had a lot of friends who did that and certainly loved it. So little by little, I'm trying to make up for that as a grown-up.
1: Definitely. And you, and you mentioned Syracuse. And, and thankfully, we've had a lot of people who, who went to Syracuse and spoke to us about Syracuse. And, and they said such high things. Um, can you tell us how important Newhouse was for your development? And maybe, I guess, the coolest sports moment that you saw during your time there?
2: It, it's still to this day, without trying to sound like a a living, breathing advertisement for Syracuse and the Newhouse School, it still today is the most important thing in my career. There's something that we call the Newhouse Mafia, and it's once you graduate, you're in the Mafia, you're a made guy or female. Anybody who I've ever reached out to, even if it's Bob Costas, even if it's Marv Albert, who I have yet to meet in person, but Bob, I have, they're more than willing to help you. Not that they wouldn't be willing to help you if you weren't from Syracuse, but if you graduated from Newhouse, you're part of that fraternity, you're part of that Newhouse mafia. And to this day, it helps me every day. The, the hands-on experience I got there, yeah, it was terrific, but there are plenty of other schools that have those ways and means. Florida has a great communications program, Missouri does, uh, there are a lot. USC has a good one, Arizona State has one. Um, I could go on and on, but the experience I had at Syracuse was tremendous, and I couldn't trade that at the time for anything else. Knowing how single-minded I was about getting into the industry that I got into, and now 25 years later, it's even better than it was when I was there. I mean, Mike Tarico has become such a wonderful support system for that school, and I only mention him because his name is literally on a building now. But I mean, you go on that list and it's a who's who in my industry. And I've been honored by certain experts in the field to be listed among, I think it was like the top 50 guys to graduate from Newhouse. And it, it blows my mind even having those words come out of my mouth to tell you about that, that I'm even in that conversation. It's, it's humbling. It's surreal. It's everything you would imagine it would be, but having those moments to interact on some level with those guys is like a dream come true for me. And um I I I stand on their shoulders and in that same vein I want to help out whoever I can and uh I try as much as I can to help out aspiring sportscasters too, whether or not they're Jewish or whether or not they're
1: Syracuse. <laughs> of course, of course. Have you had the opportunity to go back there recently or no?
2: Yeah, I, I go back a lot. ESPN's really great about sending me up there um Usually it's at least once a year. I covered the ACC a couple of times. Now I'm a Big 12 guy, so um, I, I do only Big 12 basketball. Uh, so it's harder, but usually during the non-conference schedule, they'll schedule me one game up there because they know how much it means to me. Oh, yeah. uh, the greatest moment was nine years ago. You guys are old enough to remember when the NBA had a lockout, uh, and Carmelo was you know still at his prime at that time. And so the lockout was going on And Syracuse at that time, had a handful of guys who were playing in the league. Uh, Johnny Flynn was in the league at that time. Uh, I wanna say maybe even Hakeem Warwick was in the league at that time. There were a bunch of good dudes. And the, I went up there to cover what they call orange madness, but it's midnight madness. It's the unofficial start to basketball season. And I was so psyched and I was up there doing it with Tim Welsh, who is a former Syracuse assistant now an ESPN analyst and a good friend of mine and a good friend of Jim Boeheim's, which will lead me to my next great story. But what happened was the game for the current team, as it were, in 2011 took a a back seat because the rumors were that Carmelo was going to show up because the NBA was in a lockout. So there was a scrimmage. It was like an NBA All-Star game scrimmage between all these Syracuse guys who came back. And then all of a sudden, Jim Beheim comes to center court and goes, we got one more guy for you.
1: And everyone
2: knew at that point what was happening. And Mello walks out to center court. Of course, he didn't play, but he was there sitting center court to watch everything. That was probably my favorite moment as a broadcaster going back to Syracuse. And then the other thing I'll share with you is one time I did a, a New Year's Eve game. At Syracuse, and you're thinking, New Year's Eve, that sucks. We but
0: like because Year. Jim
2: Beheim is Jim Beheim, he said, If I'm playing on New Year's Eve, I'm not playing at night, I'm playing during the day. So we played a day game, and that night, Jim comes out after the game, and I was with Tim Welsh again, and he goes, I'm having a New Year's Eve party. Why don't you guys stop by? So I spent New <laughs> Year's Eve at Jim Beheim's house with Mike Hopkins, who's a, a great friend of mine, the assistant coach now the head coach at Washington for the Huskies, uh, and and everybody there. And it was, again, it was like an out-of-body experience. I'm sitting there snapping pictures and saying to myself, I can't believe I'm actually here doing this right now when 20 years ago I never would have dreamed of this happening.
1: Any be yeah. crazy. guys you see at the uh, New Year's party, you remember, you'd be like, oh, shit.
2: Well, no, but the, the coolest thing about Jim Boeheim's house is that he built his kids an authentic – half court of Syracuse's court inside the carrier dome wow. that's attached to his house. And I don't know how much you cover. How yeah. It must be nice. Follow, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how close you follow college hoops, but one of his sons is now a stud at Cornell mm-hmm. and his other one buddy is now maybe the best scorer coming into this year on Syracuse's basketball team. And he's going into his junior year. So uh, they, they fare pretty well for themselves.
0: All right. I do. I do want to ask you, you mentioned the big 12, Um, I I tell everyone, I think Texas is is the best school in the country. I I don't think there's any atmosphere or city that can top that school. What would you say is like the most electric atmosphere in the entire Big 12?
2: It's hard to argue with Allen Fieldhouse and the Kansas Jayhawks. I mean, they're, you know, I I just did another podcast recently and they asked me a, a similar question and the two places in my career that I've been that I would put up against any are Allen Fieldhouse in Lawrence, Kansas, and then staying in that same state, the Coke Arena at Wichita State. And I kind of cut my teeth in college basketball following that Wichita State team. Again, a bunch of years ago, they, they went on their run to the Final Four back in 2016. They had an undefeated season, which I was fortunate enough to call a bunch of their games, including the last game of the regular season that capped that historic undefeated season. And that arena only holds 10,000, but it is dark. It is intimidating for the opposition and it is loud as all get out. And the fans in Kansas just get it. They are smart. They are exuberant. They uh, they do something that I really appreciate, which is they never really go over the line in berating the other team. And I've been in a lot of arenas where fans from the from the home team cross a line in my opinion in trying to throw off the opposition. Nobody in Kansas seems to do that. So uh, I really appreciate and applaud them for it. Those would be my two, two arenas, one in the Big 12 and one obviously not in the Big 12 in Wichita State. But I'm with you Laz, I, I love Texas just because I think Austin is such a kick-ass town. I, I'm, I'm one of the few Jews who feels like they're well-versed in barbecue because I spent so much time <laughs> in that part of the country whether it's Kansas City, or Texas, or Homa. Um, I've had my fair share of gold medal, uh, elite level barbecue, and I love that just as much as anything.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of barbecue, I mean, besides me being a big foodie and our podcast being huge foodies, because we talk about food so much, I heard you were a cooking host and had the chance to be around Guy Fieri, who's like a god to me. I love that guy. Oh, I really? That. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that, that was kick-ass, man. It was everything you could imagine. He is, uh, in real life, as he is on television, he's a freaking rock star. I mean, yeah. he lives his life like a rock star. And no one has ever done that before. So he's a trailblazer. And that's someone you have to, you know, like him or not, you got to give props to him for that. Uh, the way I got to know Guy was because I spent almost like a sabbatical from sportscasting for six years at Home Shopping Network. And for people who might not know this, it, the reason I – ended up working for HSN was because I lived down here in St. Pete. Their studios are in St. Petersburg. And we I was working in their building before I came on as a full-time host because Fox Sportsnet back in 1999 had just started up, and they didn't have their own studio. So they were farming out shows to any production company who had a good enough idea to be aired on Fox Net. There was a production company down in St. Pete that had a great idea called The Daily Sports Source, which was a show that combined sports talk and sports memorabilia. And I happened to be in the, in the market at the time. I was covering high school sports. I was working for the Tampa Bay Lightning and they called me in for an audition. I got it. And so a lot of HSN people were walking around our studio all the time. And that show lasted unfortunately only one year. But they came to me and they said, we want you to be a host. And I was like, I don't sell shit on TV. I'm a sports guy. And they said, well, we won the marketing rights to Monday Night Football. And you're going to host a show on the Monday Night Football circuit. Every game, you're going to go on the field live an hour before kickoff. And you're going to have a Hall of Famer who's going to be your guest every week. So I said, sign me up. Yeah. And and this shows you how, you know, I, I almost feel like the Forrest Gump of sports casting Because... I, I I had the ability through some Jewish geography to get in touch with Al Michaels. My dad is not a sports fan. My dad is a businessman, but he had an office in New York city for 30 years. And it just so happened to be on the same floor as a company that was into sports management. And they knew somebody there who was close with Al Michaels. So my dad went to bat for me and this guy went to bat for me and got me Al Michaels phone number. And I called him. And I sent him my demo reel. And I said, HSN wants to hire me to do the show. And this is back in 99, mind you. And I was you know, still in his, in, in, at the peak of his, of his talents doing Monday Night Football. And he said, maybe 10 years ago, I would have told you that you're nuts and you're torpedoing your sports career, but the walls are starting to come down. And how foresightful that is of him, because that was just at the beginning of all of these lines getting blurred in television and selling things on TV and so on and so forth. So I took the job. Next thing I know, I'm in Denver, Colorado for the Giants Broncos game to start the 2001 season. And I'm with Al Michaels, who told me the year before to take that job. So again, things come in full circle and and it's crazy how things operate. And uh, I thank Al to this day for steering me in that direction but that led me after 2001 to stay on full time with them. And I couldn't just do sports because there wasn't enough programming to kind of justify the the salary that I was making. So they said, we want you to be a cooking host. And I was like, I don't cook, (laughs) but they said, we'll send you to cooking school. So they paid for me to take some classes and to go to cooking school. And I did it and I learned that I loved it. And HSN brings through the, the heaviest of heavy hitters. I learned how to make scrambled eggs with Wolfgang Puck on TV. I, I worked with uh, Emeril Lagasse. I worked with Kat Cora. Um, I know you guys, a couple of you guys are Long Island guys. I don't know if you've ever been in the city. i one of Scott Ponant's restaurants, but Scott's a good friend of mine and he is one of the premier Italian cooks oh, in yeah. the country. And he's a big presence on Food Network now.
0: You some free appetizers.
2: Oh, Dad! I have feasted in some restaurants just because of those relationships that I got from literally learning from some of the greatest chefs on TV. And uh, so, you know, would I trade it? Um, maybe if it would have, you know, kind of pushed my sports casting career along a little bit faster than it did. But I certainly wouldn't trade it for the experiences that I had because – some of those things are are still surreal to me
1: yeah i mean i love scott a great host of chopped uh for any of you listeners that don't know um but you didn't know yeah come on (laughs) so i want to hear about how you got your job with espn so tell us a little bit about that. And do you think your career really took off once you got that job?
2: Working for ESPN certainly looks good on the resume and it, it opens some doors for you. I had actually been working with with ESPN, not for ESPN, uh, a number of years prior. You all are familiar with Chris Fowler. Uh, he is the, the king of college football right now, calls the national championship game every year. Chris got his start at ESPN 20 plus years ago at a show called Scholastic Sports America, which doesn't exist, but I wish that it did because it was a dynamite show where he hosted and all these correspondents would do stories on local high school amateur athletes who were kind of the up and comers. And I mean, his first season, he did a story on Emmett Smith. I mean, you go back and look at some of these old episodes and it's like a who's who of the greatest athletes of the last 25 years. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I was covering high school sports when I moved down to the Tampa Bay area. This is back in 95, and I was such a fan of the show that I started sending in stories. And lo and behold, they bought some of those stories to air on Scholastic Sports America. And at that time, Melissa Stark was the host. She went on to work for NFL Network. And right after Melissa was the host, Rachel Nichols took over the hosting job. And we all know what Rachel's gone on to do. Uh, as the host of The Jump. So that was kind of my first foray into freelancing for ESPN. And then I started doing some wacky shit. Like I was covering BMX racing for them before they had the X Games. I did some Powerboat racing series. Um, again, that would air on ESPN2 when ESPN2 was new. But I really broke in in 2009 when I left HSN and I said, I'm betting on myself. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to try to at least get a foot in the door full time with ESPN. And because of that new house Mafia that I alluded to earlier, I knew of a woman up there who was the head of talent hiring. Her name is Lori Orlando. She's still a big shot executive now, albeit with CBS. And just the fact that we both went to Syracuse, she was nice enough to allow me to fly up to Bristol, Connecticut and sit down and interview with her. And she said, I got nothing for you now, but I'm gonna be in touch because there could be some things coming your way. And a few months later, I got a call from a gentleman by the name of Chris Farrow, who was working, heading up U at the time. And he said, do you do play-by-play? So my, of course my answer was yes, even though I hadn't done any kind of play-by-play, let alone college basketball in years. So I basically fudged uh, a college basketball demo reel for him where I literally like did a game that wasn't live. I faked it on camera open, sent it to him and he called me that November of 95. No, this is back now 2009. And he says to me, um, you got two games coming up. It's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. It's in Orlando and it's with Len Elmore. And if you guys don't know who Len Elmore is, look him up because he is a legend. He's a New York legend, grew up in the Bronx with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He went on to be an All-American at Maryland and then went on to a great NBA career, but really was a big, big, big time announcer in college basketball for CBS and for ESPN. And this is who my very first two games are gonna be with. And that was back in November of 2009. And it's, it's the big boy network at that point. You, you don't call them, they call you. Two games turned into eight games. Eight games the following season turned into 20 games. And now I am what's considered, a, you know, a, a seasonal employee of ESPN. I only work for them six months out of the year during basketball season because the other six months are spent uh, covering the Tampa Bay Rays with Fox Sports Florida. But uh, it, it, that definitely was the quote-unquote big break of my career
0: we got to keep track of how many uh, name drops you got yeah. this episode. It's got to be like at least 25 by now. You, might, you, know, you know some pretty fun, cool people, man. <laughs> I, I
2: know. I, I, yeah, yeah. Part of me sounds like uh, I'm doing it on purpose. But, you know, <laughs> in, in recounting the I don't think there's anybody, honestly, if, if I hung my hat on one thing, I'm not the best play-by-play guy out there. I'm not the best studio host out there. I'm certainly not the best cooking host out there. But I think the one thing that I might have on anybody else who's in the, the industry that I'm in is I have the weirdest fucking resume that you would ever hear about. <laughs> I mean, there's no one else you're going to talk to that's worked at Home Shopping Network and ESPN. Yep. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, for a long time, I kind of avoided talking about that because I thought it was like a scarlet letter on my resume. But now I, I embrace it. And I think versatility is a, is a strength for anybody. Yeah getting into this business. And uh, so I, now I take pride in the fact that I've taken such a, a wide twist and turn way to get to where I am now.
1: But that's great. You want to experience everything. You Sometimes you got to step outside your comfort zone to experience these new things to, I guess, oh, understand yeah. what you really want to do. So, I mean, that's great. Yeah. Be comfortable being uncomfortable.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I like that. I can't stress that enough. I mean, that's how we felt when we started this podcast, but, you know, slowly and surely you kind of get comfortable. But I do want to, speaking of ESPN, and I know you, that you know that Cappy and I are both somewhat of hockey nuts. I want to get your opinion on this before I ask the story about Wayne Gretzky. Personally, I think the worst thing that could have happened to hockey and its popularity was getting dropped by ESPN, how they don't cover it anymore. I thought yeah. Bill Clement and Steve Levy were unbelievable when they announced hockey back in the day. So I kind of want to get your opinion on that as far as the hockey popularity goes. And then I do know you have a pretty cool story with Wayne Gretzky that I would love for you to tell us about.
2: Yes, thanks for teeing me up, Laz. That's, uh, that's podcasting 101 right there. <laughs> um, I, I have some great hockey stories, even though I never really played hockey other than like street hockey, roller hockey, stuff like that. And I, my line was always, I've never really been a hockey fan. I was always a Rangers fan, though. And my greatest sports moment to this day remains the fact that I was at Game 7 of the 94 Stanley Cup Finals. As a matter of fact, I was at Game 6 of the Eastern Conference Finals at the Mm Meadowlands when Messier guaranteed the victory. I was at Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals when Matos scored the goal. Um, So that was the greatest moment in my sports viewing history that I was there for all of those games. Um, So that's one thing. The second thing, I agree with you 100%. Um, I miss hockey being on ESPN, because unless you have experienced hockey in person, you really don't know or appreciate how great the sport is. And I had the great good fortune for a few years to work with the Tampa Bay Lightning, first as a reporter, but then as their PA announcer. And you mentioned that in, uh, in your intro to me way back in 99 again, and I did the PA announcing, And the best thing about that job was not the job, it was the location of the job. I was literally center ice on the ice for all of their home games. Now, they sucked back then, but it didn't matter because I was doing all 41 of their home games, and it was such a joy, and it really gave me a whole new level of appreciation and love for the sport of hockey. So uh, that's that's definitely one thing. Now, as far as the Wayne Gretzky story goes, this then you have to fast forward to uh, when I was covering baseball for the Rays. This goes back, I want to say it was 2017 maybe, and I'm traveling with the team. We're in Toronto for a series against the Blue Jays, and if you've never been to Toronto or seen what the Rogers Center is like, Rogers Center is in one place, and then literally walking distance from there, is the Four Seasons, and that's where almost all of the visiting teams who play the, uh, the Blue Jays stay. So after the game, I go back to the hotel bar. I'm having a couple of pops with some of the guys, and all of a sudden uh, my co-host, who goes by Arrestes strada I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Arrestas, but he's a great guy. He goes, Rich, you won't believe this, Wayne Gretzky is at the bar. <laughs> and I'm like, you are shitting me. He goes, nope. I go, I am meeting Wayne Gretzky. There is no way he's leaving this bar if I'm not going to meet him. So I stand up, and I'm just waiting. And I'm not going to approach him. I'm going to wait for him to pass me. Finally, after a few minutes, he starts making his way past me. I turn. I introduce myself, and I say, I'm with the Rays. We're in town. playing. The first line to me is, you guys cover baseball? I love baseball. <laughs> Do you mind if I sit down with you? And I was like, no. sits down with us now. He's had a few pops at this time himself because the guy never had an empty beer glass in his hand. Everyone was buying this guy drinks, as you can imagine. Yeah. We end up shooting the shit only about baseball for about two hours. His line as we close down the bar and get ready to leave is, so you guys said you're in town for the series. Does that mean you're going to be here tomorrow night? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, I'm going to be here tomorrow night, too. You want to hang out? And I'm like, you're Wayne Gretzky. Yes, I want to hang out. So word travels really fast. I'm in the gym the next morning at the hotel gym, and our pitching coach at the time, Jim Hickey, goes, heard you met Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, he goes, well, uh, I'm a huge hockey fan. Uh, if he's around, I'd love to meet him. Of course, it spreads like wildfire. The next night, Wayne shows up after the game, and now we have our own table, and A half dozen of the Rays players show up also. And now it's just a round table and a free-for-all. But he told us so many great stories. My favorite one that I'll share with you, which I know he wouldn't be mad if I told. He was a teenager still playing in the WHL. And he was in Kansas City. And George Brett was the man at the time. And so George Brett knew who Wayne Gretzky was and said, I want to hang out with Wayne Gretzky. So, After the game, they're hanging out in Kansas City. And, again, they're having a couple of pops. Wayne was, you know, abstaining as much as he could abstain as a teenager at the time. And he's like, I got to go because I have a game tomorrow. And Wayne and uh, George Brett says to him, hey, you know, we're playing tomorrow night. You want me to leave you tickets for the game? And Wayne's like, sure, that would be awesome. I'm a big baseball fan. So he's thinking the game is at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock or whatever, because it's like 3 o'clock in the morning at the time. He gets the tickets and looks, and it's a day game. And George Brett is knocking back beers at 3 o'clock in the morning, having to wake up the next day for a day game. And that's how good George Brett was at the time. Uh, I don't know if I'd be able to ever do what George Brett did, but – that was one story that sticks with me from, uh, from my time with Wayne Gretzky.
1: Well, I mean, hockey back in the day is a lot different than hockey today. Obviously, guys are smoking cigarettes in the locker room and doing shit yeah, in exactly. between periods. I mean, I don't think that, that people would get away with that today. But besides hockey, um, I know you've been to eight Super Bowls, which is pretty spectacular. I mean, some people don't even get to go to one. So I guess what do you think is the most memorable Super Bowl you've been to?
2: Uh, That's a great one. Uh, My first Super Bowl that I saw in person was right here in Tampa, and it was when the Giants played the Ravens. If the Giants had won, I would say that was it. But they got housed by the Ravens, so I don't have the greatest memories of that. The next year was my most memorable Super Bowl. That was uh, after 9-11, of course, and it was the Patriots' first time going to the Super Bowl with Tom Brady. And I was right there on the sidelines when Adam Vinatieri kicked the field goal to beat the Rams and win the Super Bowl. Uh, at, now that I think of it, that was actually two years after the Giants' Super Bowl. It was unforgettable. I will tell you this, not to be like a, a wet blanket on the whole Super Bowl experience. It's not as fun as you think it is unless one of your teams is in it and you are partying like it's 1999. It is a very corporate atmosphere at the Super Bowl. Um, so it was a little disillusioning to me at the time because I did my show and then I got to watch as a fan because part of our, our deal was we were lucky enough that we got tickets and we could sit there. I wasn't drinking because I know I was going to have to do a show, but, uh, I was sitting with all the fans and it just felt very sanitized and very corporate unless you're a diehard and you're there rooting for one of your teams and then your team wins. If that's the case, then... I think it's bucket list to go. Other than that, it was obviously a thrill because I actually got to be on the field and interview. I mean, I was talking to Jerome Bettis after the Steelers won the Super Bowl at Ford Field. You know, things like that are definitely uh, unforgettable moments for me as a sportscaster.
0: While we're on football, I, I know it's kind of like an uncomfortable thing to talk about maybe, but you did have a job covering, You were, I think you were the lead, covering the Aaron Hernandez story. yeah. Tell us a little, bit, a little bit about that experience, because I'm sure that was, you know, a very emotional thing to kind of cover. and Yeah, that was
2: bizarre. Um, I spent a bunch of years working for NFL Network as a correspondent for them. And I'll never forget, I was in Atlanta covering training camp, I believe, for the Falcons and heading to the airport on my way home. And I got a call from my boss saying, do me a favor. Are you able to fly up to uh, New England instead of head home? something's going on with Aaron Hernandez. We don't know what it is. It's probably nothing, but we need boots on the ground. We need someone there. Would you mind going? So I said, no, I'll, I'll change my flight. I fly into the, here's a little insider's tip. If you're ever going to a Patriots game, fly into Providence, don't fly into Boston. Logan Airport's a nightmare. Providence Airport is in Rhode Island. You take a Southwest flight direct in and it's 30 minutes to, uh, to the stadium. That as an aside, I fly in, I go over to the Patriots facility, and there's nothing going on. But then all of a sudden, word starts coming out that there is something brewing. So I'm like, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, go find out where Aaron Hernandez is and see if you can figure something out. So that's where, you know, my journalistic skills kick in. And this is a news story now. It's not a sports story. It's a news story. So I go and I camp out, and lo and behold, the next 24 hours, I'm now shoulder-to-shoulder with CNN and Good Morning America. We were the first ones there, though, because it started out as a sports story and then quickly became a news story. And I ended up camping out outside Aaron Hernandez's house for 10 days. I had to go to the local (laughs) Target next to Foxborough Stadium to buy clothes and ties because I only had enough clothes for one day, but I'll never forget. And it's not like I'm, I'm proud of this or anything, but I was proud of our coverage because we were the, you know, ESPN was there, but they were there after a couple of days. We were there from the first moment this became a news story. And I was really proud of the fact that we were one of the first ones to go live on the air when Hernandez was actually arrested. Um, after that, it was – really disheartening and disquieting and probably the most, the the most difficult thing that I've ever covered because I then had to go after being able to go home, obviously I then had to follow up and go to his court dates. And that was just eerie and scary. Uh, I'd be lying if I told you I wasn't scared. There was one time where he came in and his then uh, fiance was sitting kind of diagonal from me a few rows up and to the left and he turned around and looked at her and when he did I could have sworn that we made eye contact and at that point listen I I could say this now but at that point just like most people I was pretty sure he committed the murders that he later became guilty of and I locked eyes with him and I remember thinking to myself I was scared and I said to myself what are you scared of it's not like he's going to kill you yeah you're in a courtroom and he's got handcuffs but it, it was still the scariest moment that i've ever had certainly in my professional and journalistic career uh you know i i feel bad for his family i feel bad for everyone who was a victim at that time um but that was one of those moments that certainly will stay with me forever
1: and then you cover obviously you cover this for so long and then you see the documentary series that comes out about it what do you think of that
2: it was, um, it was spot on. I mean, they yeah. I, I, I think they tried to tell it as even handedly as possible. And there were a couple of them, but it, it brought back memories in the worst way. Certainly not yeah. in the best way. And listen, you guys know this hindsight is 2020, right? So you could paint this story any way you want. But at the time I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm literally like walking over and talking to, police officers and FBI agents as there are scuba divers in the lake next to his house looking for the loaded, you know, looking for the, the weapon, the, yeah. the literal smoking gun and thinking to myself, could this really be happening? Like what's going to happen? What's the end result going to be? So, uh, you know, even even at that point, I could step outside myself and be like, this is gonna be a movie someday. Like, this, you can't write a Hollywood script that that is any crazier than
0: this one. For us, we didn't live through when the whole OJ trial happened and that whole thing surfaced. But you, you you've you seen the whole thing unravel with OJ Simpson, then you're covering the whole thing with Aaron Hernandez. Was that all relatable? Well, the only
2: thing that, the, the thing that was unrelatable about it for me was I was standing in front of the camera with a microphone in my hand covering Aaron Hernandez. So that was surreal. But you talk about OJ, and listen, there was nothing from 1994 until that moment uh, with Aaron Hernandez that came close. And if anything did, it was Aaron Hernandez. And the only reason I would say maybe Aaron Hernandez's situation, in to use a maybe an ill-advised term, trumps the OJ stories that Aaron Hernandez was a current player in the NFL. So that led everybody kind of after the fact to go, wait a minute. So a murderer was playing for the Super Bowl champion New England Patriots. You never had the opportunity to say that about OJ, obviously. But you guys at this point probably understand OJ was America's darling. He was in the Naked Gun movies. He was on Monday Night Football. He was, uh, you know, just an absolute beloved person across America, inside or outside sports. But I distinctly remember watching the NBA finals with my friends in high school in 1994. I had just moved home after graduating college and watching. And obviously I was glued to the TV for no other reason than my favorite team, the Knicks, was finally in the NBA finals in my lifetime. And all of a sudden they break in and Bob Costas is telling this story about how, there's a white Bronco on the freeway. And I, I mean, you couldn't even compute what was going on at the time. But I remember, you know, the, the voices, you know, it was Marv Albert, it was Bob Costas, it was, and everybody was in all hands on deck mode and nobody really knew at the time what was going on. And it was kind of the same thing, but different because I remember distinctly at that time thinking, there is no way that OJ did this. He's either being set up or framed or something. But information that comes out, you get skeptical. With Aaron Hernandez, I don't know if it was quite that way based on his checkered past. Uh, but that OJ thing, man, you know, I, I think back on that, that Knicks team, and obviously we saw a lot of it relived in the, the Last Dance documentary that just came on, on ESPN. And I still have a lot of bitterness about that because that Knicks team – was so good, and I, I do think on some level that they overachieved. They were never going to beat the Bulls. The Rockets had Akeem and and Clyde Drexler. They were never better than any of those teams. But that year, they had a legitimate chance to win the NBA title, and, you know, everything kind of fell the wrong way for them. And uh, And then you compound that by OJ and that whole scenario really just rocking the entire sports world and the entire world in general. It was it was an unbelievable time back in, in the spring and summer of 94, that's for sure.
0: Also, I thought Cuba Gooding Jr. killed his role as O.J. in the 10-part series on Netflix. I don't know if you watched that. But um, before we get into the matzo ball minute, which I'm sure you're looking forward to. Oh,
2: I can't wait for the matzo ball minute.
0: I do have one more question for you, though. Since you've been in Tampa for 25-plus years, has it been? If you had to pick one athlete in Tampa Bay – who would you say has made the biggest impact or has had the biggest influence on the city? Ooh,
2: that's a tough one. Um, gosh, you know what? I, I have your answer, but I will, I will give you a couple of caveats. The biggest name in Tampa Bay sports, in my opinion, is the late, great Leroy Selman. Um, again, he's way before your time, but he's a Hall of Famer and more important than being a Hall of Fame player for the Buccaneers, he's a Hall of Fame person. And I got to know him on a personal level. He went on to become the athletic director at USF and I got to work with him in a couple of different variations, but he was an absolute prince of a guy and passed away way too soon. But he was on those Bucks teams when they started out 0-14 and 0-16 and they were the picture of futility in the mid 70s. He helped turn the tide for the Buccaneers. So I'm going to say him. Now, with that said, I don't think there's any more memorable sports figure in Tampa Bay than Warren South. And he was the heartbeat of that Super Bowl winning team. He's gotten himself in, in plenty of scrapes and plenty of, you know, uh, unfortunate instances in his playing career and after his playing career. You know, this is another name dropping scenario for me. <laughs> I got the chance to work with Warren. Yeah, do it. NFL Network a couple times and he couldn't have been nicer. The rap on Warren Sapp and uh, I hope I'm not going to get in too much trouble for saying this, but the rap on Warren Sapp is he was 180 one way and 180 another way. He could treat you like absolute dirt and then five minutes turn around and be your best friend. I was fortunate that I never got to be on the dirt end of that. I was always on the good side of that, uh, but You would never find a guy you'd want to hang out with more than Warren Sapp. He was the life of the party and he was a hall of famer in his own right. So those are the, those are the two names that jump out at me. As far as baseball goes, listen, Wade Boggs hitting his, getting his 3000th hit for the Tampa Bay Ben Devil Rays is memorable and he's a Pinellas County guy. So that's another name. And then I think if you had to choose the best Ray of all time right now, I think you'd have to say that was Evan Longoria. And uh, he did a, a lot of great things as that kind of pivot from the Rays being a laughing stock to the Rays being what is now almost perennial playoff contenders. So those are my four names, even though you asked <laughs> okay.
0: Were you upset when, uh, when he left to go, uh, go play for the Giants? No, it was time.
2: He, he spent 10 good years. And if you follow the Rays at all, uh, that's their MO. They, they will not overpay for anyone even if he's homegrown like Longo was, uh, even if he spent his entire career with the Rays like Longo did, it was the right time, I think, for both player and team to move on. And as you see, the Rays didn't suffer when he left, and I wish him nothing but the best. He's He lives in St. Pete. He spends his off-season here. I run, him, I run into him in the public supermarket that we both go to, and, uh, you know, we give each other daps, and it, it's all good. But – um, I wasn't upset to see him leave, basically because I knew the writing was on the wall, that he was going to leave one way or the other. You
1: yeah. give each other daps. I love it. Yeah, I
0: love that he said daps. <laughs> That's awesome.
1: <laughs> no, I got to say, though, two of my favorite athletes to go through Tampa, Marty St. Louis, make a
2: Marty is fantastic. A couple of years ago, they celebrated the anniversary. I'm trying to think. So they won the cup in '04. So it was the – by 15th? 15th. It was the 15th. It was back in 19 and I got to host on Fox Sports Florida. They did this whole huge blowout special, and I got to host it. So the best thing about hosting it was they brought everyone back and were just throwing them up on set with me. And Marty being there and all those guys being there was tremendous. Vinny was there. Um, he's a kid who I interviewed when he first started coming up as a 19-year-old and got to know him a little bit. Who's that, Cavier? Yeah, Vinny Lecavier, and got to know him through the years and to see him grow up with that franchise and then have the humility to not necessarily be the man when they won the Stanley Cup. He was fantastic for that Cup team, but Marty was out of this world at that time. He was just in the zone at that time. And as you know, you need great goaltending, and they got it, and uh, the rest is history. I'm always a little bit bitter that they were never that good when I was working with them. But I've worked with them since, and just a great group of guys. I think pound for pound, hockey players are the coolest people to interact with as a sportscaster. They're, they're pound for pound the nicest dudes out there. And I could say this as a happily married man, they also get maybe the hottest chicks too. The hockey players <laughs> are, are low-key studs when it comes to that. When it comes to girlfriends and wives, they, they get their fair share of good ones.
0: Especially the Jewish ones.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Are there those out there? I don't know. I I was shocked that two of you guys played played hockey at the level you played I didn't know Jews played hockey at that
1: level. Oh yeah, we got a few good ones in the NHL right now. Adam Fox for one. There you go. So, Rich, it's time for another installment of so, the Matzah so, Ball matzo, Minute. Matzo. Now, in the past, we haven't really gone a minute with this matzo ball minute question. So we're gonna try something new here. I'm gonna put a okay. time- I'm gonna put a timer on. We're going to get it in under a minute. Now you can elaborate on some of the questions, but I might have to intervene just so we can get this time limit knocked out.
2: I okay. will Try to keep it brief.
1: All right. Ready? I'm going to start you. Three, two, one. Potato latkes or matzo ball soup?
2: I love matzo ball soup, but I'm going to go with potato latkes because my favorite thing to do is deconstruct a Reuben sandwich and put it oh. on top of yep. a giant potato latke. Oh,
1: unbelievable. Oh, Diner or delicatessen?
2: Uh, I love my delis, but I'm going to go diner. And believe it or not, being a New Jersey guy, the Ridge Diner in Park Ridge was my all-time favorite diner. That's where I grew up going as a high school kid. But the Doodah Diner in Wichita, Kansas, is my favorite diner in the country. Go there. It's your only reason to visit Wichita. It'll be (laughs) worth
1: it. (laughs) New house mafia, or I'm going to fucking fuck this up, Tawanda (laughs) Camp Friends.
2: (laughs) Oh, uh, That's two different answers, bro. One of the (laughs) friends I get on Zoom calls with still and have reunions with. Uh, The Newhouse Mafia though, that's my career. I I love and appreciate them both, but camp was, if I had to choose one time in my life, camp, high school, college, pros, camp was still the best time of my life.
1: Bob Costas or Marv Albert?
2: Oh, you're killing me. (laughs) I always wanted to be Bob Costas. I never thought I would be anything like Marv Albert. Bob Costas is always my mentor and my hero. Marv Albert is the voice of my childhood, though. You know, yeah. Rangers, Knicks, you name it. So uh, that's that's a split down the middle right there.
1: Wolfgang Puck or Guy Fieri? Wolfgang Puck.
2: Every day and twice a day. Guy is going to
1: be pissed.
2: <laughs> no, nah, he won't be. He doesn't right. even remember me at that point.
1: Yeah, right. With that being said, Guy's Grocery Games or Triple D.
2: Triple D. I yeah, hate classic. all the game shows on Food Network, uh, but I love talking about food and eating food. So uh, <laughs> I would I would be happy to step in for Guy whenever he retires from Triple D.
1: I love that. Front row at the Final Four or front row at a Bruce Springsteen concert.
2: Well. <sighs> I have been front row to Bruce Springsteen, so I'm going to have to go front row at the final four. Laz, I don't go to Bruce shows if I'm not in the pit anymore. I have connections, and I'm in the pit for every Bruce show. I've literally held Bruce above my head when he's crowd surfed.
0: Wow. I'm texting you if he goes on tour again. I need to go to a Bruce show with you.
2: You're in, buddy. You're in. I was All sitting right. in the nosebleeds at MetLife. <laughs> that's not bad either. At least you saw him at MetLife. Yeah, I can. All right.
1: Two more, Derek Jeter or Carmelo Anthony?
2: I'm going to have to go with my boy Jeetz
1: Wow right here. There okay. it is, baby.
2: Wait, let me see that. You want to see that again? There it yeah. is. That's, that's, awesome. that's a young Rich Hollenberg with an even younger Derek Jeter.
1: That's so cool.
2: Uh, I'll go with Jeets. That's a tough call too, but Jeets gets my vote. He's. I think he had as pristine a sports career as you could have.
1: Last one with this new hockey format going on. Who you got in the playoffs this year?
2: I'm going to take the Tampa Bay Lightning. I think uh I think the time off actually helps a team like that. Kind of, you know, there's an old saying in sports, clean the mechanism, and you usually use it for pitchers, like to kind of clear your mind. Uh, based on their disappointments in the playoffs in the last couple of years when they are odds on favorite to win the Stanley Cup. I think this during the they're going to come back even more focused than before, and maybe they're not as much a favorite this year as they have been in the last couple of years. But they're good enough to win it this year. They'll be my pick.
1: And we'll just like that time. We're going to stop the timer right there, boys. Hit the post. Four minutes and seven seconds. So we got to cut that in half next time. Maybe we'll. We haven't,
0: <laughs> we haven't had it under a minute yet.
1: No, <laughs> we'll haven't. But but then again, I love it. I love the name, so I could care less. The more. uh, the more discussion, the longer discussion we can have, the better. So
0: I'm sure you know Rich by now because you've listened to a couple of our episodes. The last question we finish off with is if you could go back and talk to the 15-year-old Rich Holmberg, what kind of advice would you give him?
2: Um, the 15-year-old me. When I was 15, I knew that this was what I was going to do. So I would probably tell myself to relax because it's all going to work out um, and enjoy the ride because it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. How's that?
0: Beautiful. Hey, Beautiful. We want to thank you so much. This was, this was awesome. We couldn't talked for like literally 10 hours. Definitely. Yeah, this was a blast on. for me guys. Yeah. We've been, we've been looking forward to this for over a week since, since we, uh, since we had this schedule. We're like, let's go. Yeah. Well,
2: as you can tell, and I'm not just blowing smoke. I, I, once I first heard about this because of Seth, I was like, this is fucking awesome. Like there, there's nothing like this. And that's what you have to do to kind of, you know, move the needle, so to speak, you know, create something that's original and you guys have done that. So I applaud you for it.
0: Thank you. Thank you so yeah. much. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. We definitely got to have you back on.
2: All right. Take care, guys.
0: Be safe.
1: Another great interview with Rich Hollenberg. Uh, we want to thank Rich so much for coming on. He's a huge fan of the locker room now, and we're huge fans of his. What would you guys think of the interview?
0: He was just like such a cool guy, honestly. I, I swear to God, too, I'm genuinely going to hit him up when Bruce Springsteen goes on tour, because he talked about how he goes to the pit every show. And um, obviously, you guys know that I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, and I-, I genuinely think that he would actually go to a show with me. Like, I think I think we're boys. Like honestly, I feel like we just became best friends. But overall, great guy. Maxie. what do you think? Super high energy. Uh, mm-hmm. The way he was answering questions was eye opening. Like you really wanted to hear what he what he had to say. His raise did blow up my can't lose parlay. So I don't know
1: if I love <laughs> him as much as you do right now. But, you know, give it give it 24 hours and he'll be back. But I uh, mm-hmm. really enjoyed that. Another big Sleepaway Camp guy, too, boys. Camp Tawanda, I believe. Never heard of it yeah, in he, my life before this interview.
0: He really loved the uh, the rope burn story. He really got into that a little bit. And then <laughs> yeah. Maxie Max, tried to one-up him with, with his own rope.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, that was not, I was, about that about to was say, so funny. I was, I was about to say, wasn't it Rich that, that whipped out the rope? But it was Maxie's rope. I forget, completely forgot. No, that. we both did. He, no, they both okay, did. They both did. did, Maxie. Yeah, and I had yeah. I
0: just happened to have mine sitting sitting right next to me. Okay.
1: Just, the hap, just you, happen the to things, have it right next to you. Yeah. <laughs> the things you kids keep from sleepaway camp, I just can't even. <laughs> I actually, I got my Gordon Cup trophy, like, right next to my bed, in my bedroom. <laughs> How do you People have a like Gordon
0: you... Cup trophy? I thought it's always, you have to bring it back after you win. No, they give you, like, individual oh, ones. Oh, like, also. Okay. individual that Like, so a little Like a little participation trophy. that Manzalco. Picture...
1: I'm am picturing like I'm picturing like the Gordon Cup trophy, like the size of like the Robertson Cup trophy, just an old school trophy, legendary.
0: No, oh, pretty much, yeah, it's like the same. It, oh no, no, it doesn't have like a bowl around it though. It's just like imagine like a travel soccer tournament trophy. Like that that's that's like what it is essentially. Gotcha. But then I mean, you get like a little what? what I, I was gonna asking? say, what's the weirdest thing you've done out of the cup? Out of the Gordon, the Gordon cup? cup? Yeah
1: we you can't you can't put anything in it we drank apple juice out of it i
0: don't know but about i you. do i do have I, I know i know what? when we i know when graylock won it, they did some weird stuff wow Z- really yeah we used to like we had a hobby center at equinox though and we would like steal old, like i had like a 1976 like soccer world cup tournament trophy like from like i used we just stole old trophies in camp that was like our thing
1: so what weird shit did you guys do with it maxi What's going on? I, now? Yeah. What Unfortunately, you, what I. what have I, you I, heard? I'm not, I'm
0: not a hockey. I'm not a hockey player. I don't know people. People ate breakfast out of it. Drink That's out of weird. it. That's like really normal. Well, no. I. I. Well, I'm not gonna. I. I don't. I'm not gonna go into detail on weird stuff they've done out of it because it's. I'm not. At want to under the to, bus? <laughs> to, to exactly say it because I wasn't part of the team. But you don't want to throw Mike Greenberg's reputation out the window? My year didn't win it. They won it in one. Two thousand. First year was like 2000, maybe like 13 or 14. So, a few oh, years cool. when you were on the administration. Administration, yeah. <laughs> was a but, but,
1: boys, I do want to say uh, I'm, I am was pretty surprised of how much of a foodie Rich is. Uh, it was pretty cool he got to experience that cooking class with Guy Fieri. I mean, that's like one of my dreams. I'm not going to lie.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that was awesome. And I wouldn't expect it, too, because he was shredded. Rich, do you remember Rich's yeah. muscles? dude? he's huge. Yeah. I've actually never watched anything with Guy Fieri in it. I'm just gonna tell you the truth. i might I might the only. Yeah, I, don't think, I, I don't think I don't think I have either. It's i don't want to know the legend of him.
1: Yeah, I honestly I think you favorite. guys might maybe the only people who haven't watched. Like he's just one of those guys you throw <laughs> out. You, you you throw on Food Network, and if it's not him, it's uh it's like Bobby Flay. But I mean I'm, I can go off on this forever because you know me I'm fat and I love food. Um, <laughs> I also want to bring up Rich's relationship to my cousin, Paul. I had no idea he knew him. I I ended up bringing up my cousin's bar, American Social. He has one in Tampa. He has one in Miami, Fort Lauderdale. He's expanding to another one in Orlando. Rich, based out of Tampa, uh, working with the Rays. Just a small world. I had no idea that they were friends. He had no idea he was my cousin. So hopefully I'll be able to, in the near future, stop by for a Tampa Rays game, maybe get a beer at American Social after with him. That would be ideal, boys. That'd be sick. I'm going to have to fly him for that, honestly. That'd be awesome. And the bar is so cool, dude. Um, we're going to get Paul on here real soon. He's a fellow member of the tribe as well, um, and he runs American Social, like I said, which is a very successful uh, bar. Yeah, but honestly, boys, I think that wraps it up. I really hope you guys enjoyed the interview with Rich. Um, such a great guy, um, and hopefully we'll be able to go a beer with him in the near future once this virus stuff slows down. Yes, and I
0: do want to give a quick shout-out to a sponsor, Dude Robe. Now the sports are back. Don't forget to go to www.dudrobe.com and get your own Dude Robe at 20% off. Just use our promo code LACA for 20% off of your own Dude Robe. And I do want to thank Rich Homburg once again for coming on. It's been a blast to watch him on the air again. Now the sports are back. But uh, we'll talk to you guys this Wednesday when we drop our next episode. <laughs>